All right. Hey, open in your Bibles, please, to the book of Micah. And you may be going, where is that? Uh, Just uh, go to Isaiah and hang a right. If you go to the middle of your Bible and hang a hard right, you'll find uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. And we're in the last chapter, Micah chapter 7. And this uh, starts in verse 18. Micah 7. Verse 18, and this is God's word. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us, He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Let's pray one more time. Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, years and years and years ago, uh, when I was in college at Western Illinois University, um, I hitched a ride in the back of a pickup truck uh, with a thing on it um, back to Chicago at the very last minute. So some people were going, and it was like, I'll jump on there too. So it was very sudden. I didn't bring a lot of things and just went home and went to my parents' house in Chicago. And when I got there, unbeknownst to me, they were out of town on a trip. And uh, so I thought it was going to be a wonderful surprise, and I was like, huh. Uh, you know, years earlier, my, I knew my dad had put a key in the shed somewhere uh, under a paint can or something, and uh, I was thinking, is that key still there that will let me in to the home? And ladies and gentlemen, a sinner may ask him or herself that question, um, particularly after a, an event of uh, personal destruction, and you make a a judgment call that is a bad one, or a, you, you sink into a sin uh, habit that is very deep and, and hard. Um, you may uh, just be going through a, a dark cloud of doubt, and you, and you ask yourself, am I still safe? Am I still allowed into home? And this passage has an answer for that, and it's, it's, a, rich, it's a rich passage, and I've just so enjoyed being in it. And, and here's, here's the crafted point that I would love for you to walk away with. If people go, hey, what's that all about? I would love for you to say something like this. A spiritual traitor's only hope is God's fidelity to his own word. That's what the Bible refers to us as basically is uh, traitors, deserters, um, defectors, rebels, insurgents. uh, And that's, that's what sin is all about. God as maker has sovereign right to say how he wants his creation to work. Uh, he tells us how he wants it. He's, requ- he's uh, given us his requirements. And we, the creatures, say, no, my life, it's my body. No masters for me. Uh, that's what sin is. It's resistance to God's sovereign right to say how he wants things to be. That's the essence of sin. Now, because God is faithful, ladies and gentlemen, because he's faithful, because he's faithful to his own word, you're safely going to be brought home. You're allowed into his presence 
um, even today because of Jesus Christ. All right, so to anchor our study, can I flip you back to chapter one, verse one of this book? There's only seven chapters in this book. Um, But let's just camp out for a second in the very first verse of the book of Micah. Chapter one, verse one, it says, the word of the Lord came to Micah of Moresheth. Now, um, and let's keep going. In the days of uh, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Now, when you come to a new book like this, and it's some Micah, and who's this guy, and, and you, 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 you wonder if this is really, you, you kind of read that first verse, and you go, oh, well, that's just introduction or whatever. But th- there's, there's some very important information in there. First of all, we find out who this guy is. He's Micah, not just any Micah. He's Micah from this place, Morasheth. But what's significant about Morasheth is that it's in Judah. So it's in the southern kingdom, Judah. And, uh, you know, every once in a while, somebody will say, you know, Whatever happened to David's kingdom? You know, he had that kingdom. And what, whatever happened to David's kingdom? And, and uh, I always politely say something like, uh, Jesus, uh, that's what happened. Um, you know what happened, right? I mean, God, God brings his people into the land and David's installed as king and there's this kingdom and then Solomon, his son, builds the temple. And after that, you've got a series of bad king and there's good kings and good kings and bad kings, bad kings, bad kings, a lot of bad kings, especially in the north, bad kings and the kingdom breaks in half. That's what happened to David's kingdom. Sin happened to David's kingdom. It breaks in half and it turns into two, two parts. The northern part's called Israel and the southern part is now called Judah. Israel, bad king, bad king, bad king, bad king, and Assyria comes down in God's judgment and scoops them away and, and takes Israelite people into captivity. And then Judah remains. Um, and eventually the Babylonians take the Assyrians, they come down and they get, they get Judah also. That's what happened to David's kingdom. Now, what, what, what finally happened is that the Christ came from David's kingly line, as God promised over hundreds of years, and uh, here we are. So that's what happened to David's kingdom. But all that to say, here you've got Micah of Morasheth in Judah, and that shines some light on our passage here. We're told that he um, prophesied in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. That would mean that he was a contemporary of Isaiah and Amos and uh, Hosea, which means he prophesied during the Assyrian years or the Assyrian decades. And it kind of, you know, Isaiah and Micah kind of straddle um, the Assyrians coming, you know, hey, the Assyrians are coming, they get the Israelites and they've come and they kind of straddle that line, the Assyrian years, all right? So as a pastoral note, this guy Micah is uh, serving um, God and his people prophesying in a very heartbreaking time, a very frightening time. Uh, he's, he's, he's giving words of warning. And so if you read the book of Micah, there's all these warnings. I mean, if, you, if you've got a publisher's note uh, in your Bible above verse two, it, what does it say? The coming destruction. That's, that's the opener. So it's kind of scary. So when you get to our passage at the end, it's so hopeful and it's it's, it's just amazing, isn't it? The whole thing's about, it's warning, woe to the oppressors and um, rulers and prophets are denounced and, the, and, and all this. And, um, but, but it's full of God's deliverance too, ladies and gentlemen. Um, in, in verse one, chapter one, verse one again, look at it, the very first words, the word of the Lord that came to Micah. You know, we read that and we just breeze by it and we go, oh yeah, whatever, the word of the Lord came to Micah. Ladies and gentlemen, that the word of the Lord came at all is amazing. I mean, it is this great expression of grace that the word of the Lord came. Uh, The Israelite people had rejected their God. They had chosen idols over real gods. They neglected those that God cared deeply about. They oppressed the poor. And that was such a big thing to God because uh, what did they all have when they were in Egyptian captivity? Nothing. 
They were all equally devastated. And so God took it very seriously when those who were equally devastated started to oppress the poor as other people did well. Very big thing to God. And these people had violated the terms of the covenant that God had instigated, and yet his word still comes. That is a thing called grace. So an easy application before we've even gotten to a sermon point. Ladies and gentlemen, um, have you been less than faithful to God this week or in the last few days or this morning in the car on the way to church? <laughs> have you been less than faithful? Um, have you misprioritized God and his will in your daily existence? Have you done that? Well, this is a word for you. How about this? Have you grieved his heart? Have you forgotten that the blood of Christ was spilled for your benefit to rescue you? Have you forgotten that and tried to live beyond it and take control of your life, make decisions in your own mental power? Have you done that? Well, then this book is a word for you because uh, at, at heart, we all default to our idols that we have made. We'll talk about that more in a second, but this God is gracious. Who is a God like this God? His word still comes. The last thing I'll tell you about this prophet Micah before we hit our passage here is this. You know what his name means? Who is like Yahweh? And that nicely brings us to our passage in chapter 7, verse 18. Who is a God like unto you? All right, let's look at our first sermon point, which is this. God saves in mystery. So again, verse 1, who is a God like unto thee? That expression, who is a God like unto you? Who's a God like you? That is a very common refrain in the scriptures. Um, Exodus 15, 11, who is a God like this, O Lord, among the gods? 1 Kings 8, 30, uh, 20, 23, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant, showing steadfast love to your servants. 2 Chronicles uh, 6, there is no God like you. Deuteronomy 33, there is none like you. Uh, Psalm 35, oh Lord, who is like you? And you can go on and on and on, rewardings of that. Who is like you, God? Who is like you? Now, and that's not to say that the Bible affirms that there are other gods with a small g. It doesn't say that. But it is to say this. Um, as we read those kinds of things, it's a, it's, a, it's a personal accusation. Basically, ladies and gentlemen, it is to say that I and you, we all have other gods, and the Bible's message is they're all big, fat fakes. Every time you try to grab hold of something, ladies and gentlemen, every time you sin, what are you doing? You're an idolater because you're saying, oh, no, my way's better. Uh, yeah, I know, what the, I know what the scriptures say. I know what God's will is, but I'm going to ignore that. And I'm going to press ahead with my own agenda. And what, do you, what have you done? You just now bow down to the God that you have made, and it's a false God. That's the message uh, of the Bible. Now, you can see why this would be a highly relevant passage. So by the opening doxological question, it's a worshipful question, who is a God like unto thee? We're given a list of things to wonder about. He's not just throwing it out there. He's just saying, who is a God like unto thee? And now think about these things. So let's think about these things. What the first thing he says is this, who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity. Can anybody else do that? Can your false God pardon iniquity? No. But this God can. Now, when we talk about pardon, pardoning iniquity, uh, depending on your Bible translation, other words uh, for iniquity are translated as sin, pardoning sin, or pardoning guilt. You may have pardoning rebellion. 
all the same idea. Uh, that has to do also with the guilt that comes with it, the, uh, the, the sense of uh, shame that comes with it, the, the heavy weight. Um, and that root word for pardoning iniquity, iniquity, that word iniquity, the, the root word for that is, it has, has in it the idea of bending or twisting. Um, you ever taken a washcloth and twisted it? Um, that, that's basically the idea is, is you say, God, oh, this is what you want me to do? Well, here's what I'm gonna do with your, your good and uh, uh, perfect will. I'm gonna take it and go, mm, and twist it and uh, make it for my own purposes. Uh, now, there's another word here, transgression, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression. That word transgression is an interesting one because it's basically the willful pushing of the do not push button. You see a do not push button and you go, hmm, you know what? Looks awesome. I'm going to do it. And there are all kinds of versions of that in your life. So that's what sin is. It's not doing the stuff that we're supposed to do. And it's willfully violating what God told us not to do. I mean, uh, the fancy words are sins of uh, omission and sins of commission. You heard that before? The stuff that we're supposed to be doing. And then we transgressed God's law deliberately. That's what sin is. And behind both of those ideas is um, a sense of disdain, not just for the law, but for the one who gives the law. I'm not going to do it, and you are not going to tell me how to live my life. This is my existence. You're not going to tell me. So it's mysterious indeed, ladies and gentlemen, um, that God pardons iniquity, that he passes over transgression. Now, the idea that God pardons um, you've heard Dr. Young describe many times, and uh, particularly like on a Lord's Supper Sunday. He'll talk about how the high priest in the Old Testament in the, during the sacrificial system period, he would go in the temple and he would take the blood of one goat and he would pour it on the altar that had God's law in it. Blood was shed. And then he would go out to this other goat and he would very ceremoniously take his hands and he would press it on the head of this other goat. And the people, they know what's going on. They see, they understand. They presses his hands on this, this goat and symbolically saying, this is the sin of Israel um, on, on this one. Blood has been shed. And on this one, it takes him out in the wilderness and sets him free. Now, in that way, um, th- that scapegoat, that's where the term comes from, scapegoat. The scapegoat uh, symbolically bears the weight of the sin. And if you looked at uh, Leviticus 16.22, it says this, the goat shall bear upon it all their iniquities. Now, you know what it means to bear a burden. I mean, you pick up a 47-pound backpack and you are bearing that burden. You know what that means, to bear a burden. Other Bible translations will say, the goat shall carry all their iniquities, carries them. In fact, I think the ESV puts it that way. That means, ladies and gentlemen, that the guilt has been transferred from one and put on another, and the other one bears the guilt, carries the guilt, taking it off one putting it on the other, and that's the gospel, ladies and gentlemen. That's, that's what Jesus did on the cross. It wasn't a lovely example of submission and humility. It wasn't sad. It was sad, but it wasn't just sad. Uh, but he takes the guilt of the sinner. That's what the whole Old Testament sacrificial system is trying to communicate, is that Christ is the one who bears the sin burden, who carries the weight of guilt. Now, what else should we wonder about this God? Who is a God like this God, pardoning iniquity, Passing over transgression. Um, Now, when he passes over transgression, it's not without reason, nor can it be. He just doesn't go, oh, you know, I'm just not even going to think about that. Oh, yeah, that's terrible, but I'll just pretend that doesn't exist. He can't do that. Why? 
Because if he did, he would compromise his own justice. If he compromises his own justice, he compromises his own person. He's not God if he compromises himself in his perfection. He cannot just look the other way. Um, So God passes over transgression, yes, but not without the covering of blood. And doesn't even the terminology passing over iniquity remind you of something? Like the Passover? What happens? There's blood on the doorpost, and he passes over those who are his own. Uh, It's a very specific act. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, it's for the remnant of his inheritance is what it says. Very specific. He passes over transgression, but not just arbitrarily. He passes over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. That means the people who belong to him, the people who are his own. Now for Micah and his hearers, um, it was those who um, had not abandoned Yahweh. You know, people are being scooped away And uh, there are people, a remnant, who have not abandoned Yahweh. But many Israelites had, in fact, chosen other gods. Uh, Kings follow other gods. They worship other gods. But there's a remnant who stay with Yahweh in worship. So application for your life. Uh, Here's what what the remnant, the true remnant, the the, the worshipers of this God who have not bowed down to other gods. Here's, Here's what the remnant have in common. They have the mystery of God's saving movements. God saves in mystery. We don't know why he's doing what he's doing, but he does. You know, in verse one, uh, at the very end of it, it says, he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. That's a love that's been promised. Um, You know, I've said this uh, quite a few times over the years. You may have heard me say it in here, but loving humanity with a capital H is very easy. I love humanity. Oh, humanity. Oh, it's just so wonderful. All these, all, look at all you people. You people, all you have blood coursing through your bodies, hearts are beating, you have lives and dreams and, and all that. Oh, I love humanity. That's easy to do, to love humanity. You know what's hard to do? Love humanity with a small h. That's when it's messy. That's when you're in people's lives and, and, and you have to be sacrificial. Well, God loves humanity. He does. He loves with a, with a common grace. He does. Uh, he is good to all that he's made. But he loves very specifically unto salvation. He loves with a small h. Jesus died on the cross for humanity with a small h. He died to save sinners, real sinners. You know, in um, Deuteronomy ten fifteen, it says, the Lord chose. This is talking about the nation Israel, right? In the ESV, it puts it this way. Um, the Lord set his heart in love. Is that not a thought? That God would have looked at you and set his heart in love upon you? You know what Jesus said? He said, uh, all those the Father gives me shall come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Uh, the, the King James Version has, uh, I will certainly not drive out. And uh, does anybody speak German in here? Anyone speak German? Nobody. Okay, well, my dad, when I was growing up, he used to say, I'm, I'm sure I'm butchering this pronunciation, and my father probably was too. But when the kids were noisy and in the room uh, making a big mess, he would finally have, it, you know, have enough of it, and he'd go, raus mit you. And it was like this, you know, Hitler-sounding, very frightening uh, statement, you know, with you, something like that. It means out with you. And um, 
God's not gonna drive you out. Jesus isn't gonna drive you out when you've been given to the Father. So all to say, ladies and gentlemen, who is a God like unto thee? To put it more personally, you might ask, why did you save me, Lord? Who is a God like this that you would save the likes of me personally? And the answer is he just wanted to. (laughs) Dear one, who is a God like this? Second point, God moves in compassion. Verse 19, it says that. He will again have compassion on us. Now, if we were reckless, we might be tempted uh, to turn that into something kind of oogie-googie. Oh, compassion is such a wonderful thing and all that. But, you know, when we study the Bible, we need to see what God is trying to communicate. He wants us to know something specific. Yes, God is compassionate. We're invited to think of him as being compassionate. That's true. But his compassion isn't some kind of spiritual bubble bath. His compassion isn't just this, this pretty idea. His compassion moves. That's, that's the point. God moves in compassion. Not just an idea, he moves. Uh, and he defines his action. Look at verse 19. He will have, uh, again have compassion on us. Well, what does that look like? What does it mean? What is the Bible telling us about his compassion? He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Now, other Bible translations will say he will vanquish our iniquities. Others will say he will conquer. Others say uh, overcome, uh, subdue. The idea is that he'll trample our iniquities. Um, not as common a sight uh, in, in these years, but uh, you remember when people would uh, drop a cigarette on the ground? I mean, first of all, smoking. Next of all, just dropping cigarettes everywhere and doing the old grind it, grind it out with your foot thing, that motion. Um, You've seen people grind out a cigarette? That's, that's, that's what God does with our sin. He tramples them. He, he grinds them out. That's what his compassion looks like as he moves to take care of sin. Um, not just a pleasant feeling toward you. It's an action that delivers, but there's more. The end of verse 19. <clears throat> you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Um, you know that Mars, the planet Mars, is completely mapped. Do you know that the moon is completely mapped? I mean, we know what the craters are. We know what the hills and the valleys and all that stuff are. They all have names. We have photographs of it. The, the, and, and how many other planets are completely mapped? Like lots, I think, right? And like some of Jupiter's moons. And I mean, lots of planets are completely mapped. It's fascinating. You know how much of the ocean is mapped? Anybody know? Five percent. Five percent of the ocean floor is mapped. Isn't that amazing? We have planets that are super duper far away, and the ocean is only five percent mapped. You know why? Because it's really hard. (laughs) It's really deep. It's really violent down there, and it's really hard to get to for a human being. Um, and, And of course, you know, we'll probably have the technology one day, and we'll probably do it. But um, the point is this. God, it's not speaking literally here. Um, you know, people will say, well, I take the Bible literally. Well, I know what you mean. You take it seriously. You believe it's God's word. You believe it's inerrant. I know what you mean. But when it says something like, um, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea, you realize that your sins are not on the bottom of the ocean, right? You would t- if you took that literally, you'd be insane. 
what it's trying to say to us, God is communicating to us in a way that we humans can understand divine things. He's saying, I have taken your iniquity and I have just put them so far away that you could never find it. It's like throwing a, throwing a, a penny into the ocean. Try and find a penny in an ocean. You can't do it. That's what God is saying. Trample sin underfoot and cast your sin so far away that you can't even find it. Application for you. Again, God is not speaking literally. He's speaking in a way that you and I can understand that he has dealt with sin and it is removed from us. You know, he says in Psalm 103, as far as east is from west. That you can take literally (laughs) because they're complete opposite poles. Um, He has separated us from our sin as far as he is separated from sin because of the savior that he sent. Amazing. All right, last point. God safeguards by promise. Verse 20, you will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Now we read that and we go, okay, what? Okay, now it's weird. Jacob, Abraham, sworn to our fathers. I mean, you got, the, you're, you're, you got this kind of Old Testament speak and you go, okay, does that really apply to me? But ladies and gentlemen, see it, chew it, um, grip it. God's saving work is grounded in promise. That's what this is communicating. He promised he would save, and then he promised another he would save. He promised another he would save throughout this this lineage. He promised Abraham that the nations would be blessed through him. He promised a deliverer. He reaffirmed that covenant promise over and over and over again. Whatever happened to David's kingdom, Jesus happened to David's kingdom because God made a promise and he carried it through history. He gripped history. He made history do what he wanted so that a savior would come. And that means to you, ladies and gentlemen, the cross of Christ is no plan B. It's not like, well, you know, I tried to give him the law and that didn't work. And I tried to do some other stuff and that didn't work. And well, I guess I'll have to send the son of God. No plan B, ladies and gentlemen. God made a saving promise, a covenantal promise that he bring about a rescuer. He did throughout the course of human history. In the face of rebellion and enemies and and all that, even his own people resisting him, he still brings about the Savior that he promised. And that's the thing we need to remember is that God safeguards by promise. He just doesn't save by promise. He does. But ladies and gentlemen, you could feel safe. You can know that you're safe because God made a promise and he, he carried it through all of human history. He safeguards by promise. You know, in Genesis 17, 7, it says, um, I will establish my covenant between me, God speaking, and you, Abraham, and your offspring. That's the promise. Now, what is it specifically? Um, how long is it going to last? Well, uh, in that same verse, it says, it's an everlasting covenant. So I'm going I'm to make a promise um, between me and you and your offspring, and it's an everlasting one. What's the, what's the essence of it? It's this, Genesis 17, 8. I will be their God. Um, Exodus 6, 7. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. Leviticus 26. I will be your God and you shall be my people. And Jeremiah 30, 22. You shall be my people and I will be your God. And so an application for you in the uh, five zip codes uh, represented in this room. God was determined to save you. And he promised he would, and so he did, and so he does. Promised he would, he did, 
And he does, you're safeguarded because God is faithful to his own promises. He's got perfect fidelity to the promise he made to rescue. All right, last thing is this. If you looked at this passage and you just kind of ran through it, you know, anybody have an NIV in here? Uh, okay, they kind of goofed it up. You know, they goof up the personal pronouns. They try to help the text along a little bit. They goof it up. Um, you have, um, you have um, uh, he does not retain his anger. He delights. But then all of a sudden it switches to you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You'll do this. And the, the NIV kind of tries to make them all match up a little bit. Not, not so. Um, uh, he does this and you do this and he does this and we will do this and, you, and so on. But listen to this. Um, I, I've written these in my notes so that I don't, I don't mess them up. Listen to this emphasis. Who is a God like you? And later in that verse, in verse 18, it talks about his inheritance. Later in that verse, verse 18, it says, he does not, he delights, he will again, he will have compassion, you will tread, you will cast, you will show, you have sworn where is the spotlight? It's on what he is doing, he is doing, he is doing, he is doing. This is God moving in compassion for you. He loves you. He's faithful to his word. And I end with this question and an answer. Why? Why did God not give up on you? Why did God save you? Why did God move in mystery and compassion? Why does God make a promise and, and be faithful to it and safeguard a soul? Why? You know why? You want to know an answer why? I don't know. He just wanted to. It was just his pleasure. It was his pleasure to have you. And so he got you. Who is a God like this? Righteous Father, we thank you for loving us and for not giving up on us. I thank you for not giving up on me, Lord. You, you have every right to um, accept that you have high fidelity to your own self. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for um, saving grace. And uh, I thank you for this body of people um, who have been saved by grace. We will uh, know each other for all eternity. We will remember this day. We will remember this passage. We will remember these ponderings. And uh, it's all because of what you have accomplished in Christ, and we pray it in his name.